Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everybody. I hope this finds each of you so very well. I'm speaking to you today from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey. Delighted to welcome the very gifted empath, and talented clairvoyant medical intuitive, Dr. Rita Louise, who will be speaking to us today from Marshall, Texas. Rita is a best-selling author who has appeared on both radio and television, spoken at many conferences. Hundreds of her articles have been published worldwide, and she's produced both full-length and feature videos. To say she's a multitasker is an understatement. Her most recent book, which we will talk about today is titled The Dysfunctional Dance of the Empath and Narcissist, Create Healthy Relationships by Healing Childhood Trauma. To say her offerings are prodigious is an understatement. She's a graduate of the Berkeley Psychic Institute where she studied meditation, energy medicine, and learned how to perform intuitive clairvoyant readings. And after graduation, she returned to school to earn a degree as a naturopath and a PhD in natural health counseling. She's also a Reiki master, a certified hypnotherapist, a certified mindfulness practitioner, and the founder of the Institute of Applied Energetics, which trains students in the art of medical intuition, intuitive counseling, and energy medicine. Plus, she has a private practice of her own. And there's more. She's a professor of alternative health studies at Westbrook University in West Virginia, and she's the chairman of the board for the International Association of Medical Intuitives. She served on the board of directors for the Holistic Chamber of Commerce, and through her work, she has been recognized by the National Register's who's who in executives and professions. I'm looking forward to chatting with the multifaceted and gifted Dr. Rita Louise about many things, including how her newest book titled Dysfunctional Dance of the Empath and Narcissist, Create Healthy Relationships by Healing Childhood Trauma, was inspired by the insights she gained about her own toxic relationships being rooted in her upbringing and family of origin. The strategies that she devised in her youth to help her overcome her deep shyness and how she helps people to make better choices for their lives through her intuitive clairvoyant readings, medical intuition readings, and spiritual energy medicine healings. Sorry, spiritual energy medicine healings. Dr. Louise is known for working with the whole person, body, mind, and soul, to get to the cause of a person's concerns. Our bodies, minds, and souls will surely be deeply touched and inspired by this wonderful insights-filled interview with her today. Hi, Rita. A very long introduction, but a truly warm and and heartfelt welcome to Grief and Rebirth podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's truly my pleasure, and I think that we're going to have a lot of fun together. 
So let's start by having you tell us about the abuse you experienced during your childhood and how it drew you towards spiritual self-discovery when you were only eight years old and how spiritual pursuits became your lifelong passion. Well, you know, I don't know if it was the abuse that drove me in that area. Um, so our family were a sci-fi horror family, you know, so we watched things like One Step Beyond and The Twilight Zone and The Prisoner and The Blob and Frankenstein. And so we were always kind of brought up with kind of looking at things for a different from a different perspective. And see, and you'll resonate with this, um, you know, and when I was a kid, there were two TV shows on. One was The Amazing Creskin, which if I can get a nickel for every time I, I say his name, um, and he had ESP. And, you know, so he was like a mentalist and he could like tell people stuff. And then there was another series called The Sixth Sense, which not the movie, it was a TV series about a college professor who had ESP. And I was just drawn to that, you know, at that age. And it just became a passion for me, just digging in to anything that I could find that would give me insights because I had decided that I wanted to become psychic at that point in time. And, um, yeah. and you weren't afraid. I mean, there are people whose children have gifts and they get nervous and which I do about it. But what is the abuse you experienced? Because that per- abuse must have led you towards what you're doing now with a, this kind of book and all of that. Well, you know, with the dysfunctional dance. And so, you know, I, I make this a joke, but, you know, if you look at it from the outside, it's, it's a little sad. Um, you know, I've been married four times. I've had multiple relationships. Yeah, I, I do get a little reprieve because my last husband passed away, who was the freaking best one of them all, you know, and. But you then, got smarter with each choice. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> the last couple of relationships I've had, not so, well, actually, definitely not so smart. Oh, wow. Um, and so, and actually in this moment, I am ending a relationship with someone, um, which has been actually interesting because I feel very empowered this time, as opposed to going into a grief thing. Um, but the person I was dating prior to him, um, he was very narcissistic, but he also had, um, either he was a really hardcore drunk or he had some kind of a psychological issue going on and I never could separate. And I told him if this is a psychological issue, you know, let's get you on some kind of meds or whatever, but the drinking always overpowered everything. And he was terrible. Um, and, and actually here's another piece of the story. So I'm breaking up with him. You'll, you'll love this story. So I literally took all of his stuff, loaded it, got a friend to come over, loaded it in a truck because he was staying about two hours away. And I knew that if I didn't take, you know, the mountain to Muhammad, that Muhammad would never come to the mountain. So the friend dropped me off at a little diner. And while I'm sitting in the diner, my ex-husband, so the one that I was married to before the one that died, it gets very confusing. Um, His wife calls me and she's like, yeah, you know, I'm having some problems with 
him and you know can we talk and i'm like okay why well, what's going on and she was like he's a narcissist and it was like she put a light bulb in my mind because that husband and the boyfriend had a lot of very similar characteristics so you keep repeating patterns where well, was your father a narcissist were your parents my mother my mother your mother was the narcissist so you keep marrying your mother and then i wonder why i have mommy issues um <laughs> but what was interesting is that you know for how intuitive i am and you know working with other people i was really blindsided by that revelation and that revelation caused me to go and dig into what's going on and you know what do i need to do to fix this because obviously you know i'm going back relationships friendships um back 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 to my right. family of origin and i was just flabbergasted and so wow. how you were sitting there before we came on air talking about how spirit says you know you need to do this or you need to do that so as i was doing my own self healing i got a message because they they dump stuff on me it's like you need to write a book about this or you need to write a book it's always very short you need to write a book and I'm like, okay, you know, so then I started like taking more notes while I was doing my research. And I was like, okay, well, I can start kind of putting these words on paper. And the message I got was, you need to tell your story. You're not going to get any juice from us until you tell your story. And that was like, uh, and publish it. And that's like getting naked for the world because you're going to expose everything that's happened. All warts pretty and much, all. pretty yeah. much. But I have to tell you, it was one of the most healing parts of the whole thing because it made it so that I didn't have to run away from it anymore. And I didn't have to hide, you know, that anymore. It just became part of me. And, it, you know, so I'm very grateful that <laughs> they forced me into having to do that. Oh, and then you'll appreciate this. And I don't share this little piece of information on air very often. So I was writing literally the last chapter, finishing the last chapter. And my mother, the abuser, passed away. And, you know, one of the things that I had internalized was that I would not publish the book until after she passed away, because I couldn't do that to her. You know, and yeah, that la I was finishing up the very last chapter. Perfect divine timing. That was like I, timing. Yeah. And she's probably learning a lot now from the other side as she's witnessing what you're doing. <laughs> what was your father's deal with it? Was he the empath? I mean, I'm going to guess so. You know, my dad had a lot of friends. Um, you know, he was, I'm going to say socially active, but in a more helping kind of way. So right. he ran the bingo. He did meals on wheels for HIV people at the church once a week. So he was like the head cook and would make, you know, 30 meals for meals on wheels. He did that for years. Um, my mom at one point in time, she got a job doing social work and was working at an old age home. And my dad was retired by then. And so he would go down and this is his words, not mine. He would go play pinochle with the old ladies, you know? And so he was always very 
involved with people in a helping supportive right. role. But you know, here's your mother, a narcissist, and she's a social worker. Don't even get me started. I mean, so one day, I mean, I want to say, I want to say, because I'm in, in through this podcast, I'm encouraging people to go for healing. So one of the messages is you also need to be discerning about who you choose as your healer, because not all healers have healed themselves. <laughs> Some of them mm -hmm. definitely have their own issues that they're, that they continue to work through. I mean, I'm passionate about getting people to healing, but you need to, that's why I have these interviews and also you can hear who these people are and get your own feel for it, for them. As well, well, you know, and my mom didn't start doing social work until much later in life. Like she went back to college at 42 mm -hmm. and graduated the salutatorian of her class and um, and then went and worked for 10 years. Um, you know, but I remember her reading all these psychology books. So, I mean, there was some part of her wanting to heal or wanting to fix what was going on. You know, and that dynamic is really interesting. And I, you know, I could see where there was part of her that was just very wounded. Well, she probably got it from your grandparents. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't know what, I mean, it usually, right. someone, someone in the line, in my family, it was me. And it sounds like now it's you. Someone mm -hmm. down, someone on the line needs to stop it, heal it, and change the dynamic. And until that, and then everyone around has their choices of how they're going to react to that, right? Stay in their mm -hmm. own paradigm or move forward. And so there, that generational stuff gets passed down the line until someone says, it's enough, it's enough. Mm -hmm. And then someone like Rita comes out with a book about the dysfunctional dance of the empath and narcissist. And you go, here it is. Okay, I have to turn a new page, right? Well, you know, and I'm going to say like, it's a really good book for New Yorkers because it is just like, straightforward and a little on the raw side, um, you know, but it really makes you stop and look at yourself, you know, and do an inner inventory of what's going on inside. And, you know, one of the most common com comments I've gotten was, has been, it made me cry. And I'm like, well, that's good. You yeah, know, that means that you're feeling it and you're releasing it and grieving it and acknowledging yeah. it. Well, you're acting also as a mirror for them because what you're doing is identifying it so they can see it in themselves. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that you do, uh, first of all, aside from all of this, I really want to talk to you about your story about two things, how you overcame your deep shyness, because that's great to know in general for people. And also how you help people make better choices in their lives with your clairvoyant readings. So if someone's listening to you and falling in love with mm -hmm. you right now, well, how do you help people um, through your medical intuition readings, your spiritual energy medicine readings, your clairvoyant readings, and then as a sidebar, how the heck did you overcome deep shyness as a kid? And what was that from? Too many shows with the, uh, the outer? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, well, and I'm sitting there going, I mean, because I'll talk about that story on air. I'm like, okay, I don't remember putting that in an article or somewhere or anyway. So um, I come from a very large family. I am one of eight. Um, very loud New York, uh, Jewish, Puerto Rican family. I can um, relate to part of that. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> and, um, you know, my birth order was number three. 
And the way the dynamics were, I was considered a big kid, you know, but I was one of, I had all of the responsibility of being one of the big kids and in charge. But since I was the youngest, I had absolutely no power. And so I was trained to just basically shut up. And, um, and look at you now. <laughs> I mean, people, I'll tell people, it's like, well, you know, I used to be really shy and they're like, right. So how did you overcome this thing? So, um, when I was 19, I left New York. And so you were shy all the way up to 19. You still hadn't kicked it yet. No, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no, by the time I moved to California, I was really not in a good place. I had been beaten down very hard and it was all I could do to escape. And, um, and I went there and I mean, I was overweight and now I'm like really scrawny, but I was overweight and I really didn't like who I was. And it wasn't because, and you know, just because I didn't like how I was interfacing with the world. And I knew that for me to change that, I had to change me. And so, you know, that's a big statement, though, Rita. A lot of people don't realize that. A lot of people want everything around them to change. And really, the core of it is that you have to do the change. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so this is going to sound so stupid, but it really was my life. And so I would walk to work because I was 19. I literally moved to California with $125, no place to live, no friends, because I was going to go to school there. Plucky girl, aren't you? Cojones. That's what people say. She <laughs> yes. had big cojones. Right. Um, Courageous. Got a job within a week. That was within walking distance of where I was living. And on my way to work, there was a 7-Eleven. And I would make myself tasks. And so my task for a while, this is going to sound so lame, was... I'm going to walk into 7-Eleven and say hi to the person behind the counter before they interacted with me. It was a freaking white knuckle wow. scenario. It was really hard, but it's like, and, you know, and I would stop outside the store and I'd be like, okay, you're going to do this. And I would go and do it, wow. you know, and, and I just would give myself little tasks. You know, I've done a lot of wellness expo, whole life expo, new life expo. And I would give myself the task of going up to someone in a booth. I mean, cause I would have a booth and just saying hi and shaking their hand and, you know, ask them their name. I mean, because it was, um, hard, it was hard. Um, so obviously, you know, I don't do that anymore. Obviously. <laughs> wow. That's amazing that you were that shy. Uh, wow. Um, so tell us about how you help people before we start to really talk even more about your book and all. Okay. How do you really help people? Because you do three main things. You have intuitive, clairvoyant readings, and you have medical intuitive readings and spiritual energy. First of all, define those things and then tell us how you work. With okay. People. Okay. So clairvoyant readings, I think most people, if I say, you know, it's like having a psychic reading, although the term is a little more specific. Um, I tend to be a very visual person. And so if there's something going on, I will see it in my mind's eye, you know, like you can see your car or your bedroom or your mother's face, you know, that's where I see it. 
Um, I mean, I tend to be a little multimedia, you know, I'm very sensitive to people's feelings. Um, I have become more auditory where I will get auditory messages. I mean, have you trained for this or it's just, well, I, I went to the Berkeley Psychic Institute, you know, and I didn't, I mean, I told you earlier, you know, I wanted to be psychic when I was a kid and I'm like, eh, this ain't happening and studied with them. But after being in the program for three weeks, I came to the, the stark realization that I had been very psychic my whole life. And when, when you walk up to someone who is out the day before and they have a little bandaid on the top of their head and you walk up to them and go, well, where were you yesterday? Having them check for a brain tumor, just being a smart ass. Um, and that was where they were. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know? And so I started going back over my life and these coincidences, these weird coincidences. And it's like, what are you, <laughs> you, you've been doing this like a long time. Um, and so, you know, so that's the clairvoyant part, uh, the medical intuitive. So a medical intuitive is someone that uses their intuition, but they really talk about health related issues. So one of the things that I discovered kind of while I was at Berkeley, but they didn't really talk about medical stuff, um, but with some of the people there and then in my private practice was that it was very easy for me to tap into physical issues that were going on in a person's body. Um, you know, where, and, and that's one thing that I would love to share with everyone is that just because you're psychic doesn't mean that you do everything. Like, I don't do dead people. I don't want dead people coming to my house. You know, I, you know, if you ask me about a particular You're, you're a person, healer, you're not a medium, you're a healer. Right, but, you know, but many people have the preconception that if you say psychic, that's also in your bag. Right. Yeah. You know, and I'm more of like, what's going on with you, you know, on multiple levels. Can you tell people what's going to go on with them also? I don't do predictions. I don't okay. think that, uh, well, I mean, I think that we have free will and I think that the universe works in a lot of different ways. Um, I think that there are moments where we might get a premonition or something like that, you know, but I think it is um, not, you know, and I might be biased here. I would love to meet someone who does give predictions and they really do come true. Um, I mean, I think we have moments where we're giving that very specific message to pass on. But if I have a client calling me at two o'clock, um, you know, it's not like being a channel where you kind of go into your channel mode. There isn't like a, I'm doing a prediction mode, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So anyway, so no, I don't do that, but I will look at the possibilities and the probabilities. And like, this is where your energy is. And this is the thing you're trying to do or not do. And what are the chances of it happening? What are the obstacles? Are there obstacles? Are there other people around it? You know, what do you need to do to get to B from point right. A to point B? <clears throat> wow. And tell us about the spiritual energy medicine healings. 
Okay. So, and so all of this kind of works together. And so when I work with someone, you know, if they come with a straightforward health issue, mm-hmm. you know, then I can look in their body and assess their kidney and, uh, you know, tell them if there's inflammation or if there is buildup in it and they need to do some kind of cleansing work and talk to them about herbs and supplements that might be helpful for them. But also in that kidney, they might be having issues on a, the next level down with, um, you know, they're, they're working too hard. You know, there's someone that's in their life. They're with a narcissist. We'll just right. jump right in there. They're with a narcissist. And so all they've been doing is giving their energy away to this other person. But that depletion is showing up in their kidney. You know, and so I'll make that communication. It's like, okay, this is being robbed, but usually there's something sitting underneath that, that will give information about why it's being robbed, like why they're choosing to give their energy away. Oh, that's Um, interesting. You know, I mean, if somebody comes to me with a relationship question or they want to move or they want information about a job, I'll talk about pretty much anything except dead people, Um, unless it's a ghost. (laughs) tell us about the ghost you know so and this was not really anything that I planned ever on getting into career-wise but I do a lot of spirit release work with people Uh I mean I wrote one article well actually I ended up writing a book about it spiritual release work release work okay Mm -hmm. Uh, because there is a phenomena about that that revolves around entity attachments. And so I'm going to kind of give some vocabulary here. You know, so if you have a ghost in your house, like I live in a hundred year old house and there's a couple of ghosts that live here, you know, so my house is haunted because I got these dead people that live here and they, they're very nice to me and we don't bother each other. Um, If you have an entity attachment, um, it is, its goal is to manipulate you. They are the narcissists of the spirit world and they will attach themselves to you to get you to be in a certain emotional place because that's the energy that they feed off of. You know, they're energetic parasites. And, um, you know, so I work with people to get rid of them. You know, but there's a caveat. It's like people like, oh, well, get rid of it, get rid of it. But usually the entity will attach because there's something deficit in the person that needs healing that needs healing, you know, because usually the entity will come in and bother the person because now they're triggered and it's opened the door to the entity, you know, so regardless of the kind of work that I'm doing, you know, intuitive work, you know, there's always the opportunity to do energy healing you know, a Reiki. So like type. someone comes to you and they you you see that they have this attachment. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you get it out of them? It's a process. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not pray over it, or do you, or does the person have to take a proactive stance with you to do something? I mean, most of my clients want me to fix it, which mm-hmm. makes it take forever. Um, I actually have been working with one woman who has been very proactive and I'll just say, okay, so 
this is what it's attached, you know, this is another angle on it, you know, or this is some part of you that still needs healing. And she has just gone off and done, done stuff to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. I've heard about those entity attachments and I know healers who also, who like you, who are able to help people get rid of them and they really can screw up a person and you don't know why you're all having all these problems, right? Yeah, well, so you know, entity attachments come from a couple of very standard places from trauma or drug and alcohol abuse, you know, and, and I'll just disclose this here. You know, the reason I know about entities is because I had one. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, worked very hard to get rid of it. Now, yours came from, from what, where, did, where did you decide to launch into you from? I just know that I had it my whole life. You know, so I would assume from the trauma. Um, I would say, you know, some core, I experienced some very core trauma at about three years old. Um, you know, and you then the crap did go you talk away. about it or would you rather not? There, you know, I was three, you know, so I don't really have, there was just a lot of stuff that went on that during went on that house. period okay. period of time, you know, but not necessarily like specifically from my fan, you know, like my mother, you know, but like, uh, as an example, we lived, we lived on the 14th floor in the Bronx. And uh, my brother and I were racing down the hall from the elevator and I was beating him. He was older. He was, I was beating him and he tripped me and it banged my face into the floor and I had to have my two front teeth removed. Well, that would be, oh my God, that's, there's trauma over there, right there. No, there was that part. But then there was for two years, them singing all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. <laughs> that was a bigger freaking trauma. I'm going to tell you. True story. Okay. I'm getting like little goosebumps. So, I mean, this was a number of years ago and my mom asked me what I wanted for Christmas. And I just said, I want my two front teeth. And so she sent me a box because she saved our baby teeth and she sent me two front teeth. Oh my God. And it's like, it makes me even want to cry just sharing that story because it was just like, oh my God, you know, I've been waiting for this since I was like three. Wow. No, these were your baby teeth. So you're correct. So that far, your adult teeth eventually grew in. Yeah, I was almost six before they grew in. Right. So you had to go through all of that until, um, you know, I when I was researching your book, um, it they talked about that there there, that a recent Facebook survey of people who self-identify as being empathic had revealed a startling insight that over eighty percent. Of the 1,300 respondents disclosed, they had suffered from some form of abuse or neglect during their childhood. So please tell us, why does that abuse or neglect lead to a person becoming either an empath or a narcissist? Good question. Um, So I'm going to start with the empath. Um, You know, and, and it's interesting because people that would listen to a show like this are people that tend to be more empathic. You know, they're, they're, they're interested in self-growth and self-discovery uh, much more than a narcissist would ever be. Yeah, you know, but if they're so, married to a narcissist or living with a law narcissist, this is going to help them identify that. Right, but they're probably the empath. Right. <laughs> right. Um, 
Okay. Repeat part of the question because I just lost my train of thought. Sorry, I was going, why does an abuse or neglect in a person? Okay, I'll come back. I'm back. Um, and so imagine this, you are five years old and mommy and daddy are fighting, but you're in the other room, but you know, you're already sensitive. You know, children are sensitive in general. Right. You know, so you're feeling the anger or the hostility or you're hearing these bad sounds and you just go hide and you wait for it to change the energy to change to know that now you can relax you know daddy's an alcoholic the door opens up um you know you sit there and kind of put your antenna out it's like is he drunk you know is is this a safe place to be and so they grow up with years a practice feeling into their environment to make sure it's safe. I mean, I was just yes, like, that totally, totally that. makes sense. Totally makes sense. So a narcissist, on the other hand, um, you know, they also come from places of trauma. I mean, there is a psychological condition of narcissism, narcissistic personality disorder, I'm going to make the assumption that there's a certain chemical piece tied to that as well, you know, but that's at the very far end of the spectrum of people. Um, and so for them, it's like they experience this trauma, but they don't want to heal it. You know, my kind of base feeling about it is they lose hope. They give up. And so instead of sitting there, coming back and praying that it's going to be different. You know, it's like, okay. Well, are they even aware that they have a problem? I mean, not necessarily as an adult. No, no, no. Um, but as a child, it's like they won't re-engage, you know, or they'll put on what's called the false self, which is like a mask. And so even though they're scared of mommy, they're going to act like mommy's little helper, you know, and take all of the things that they're feeling and then just stuff it down inside of them. And, and all of that hurt and pain, you know, were an empath. It's like, they want to get rid of it. They want to understand it. They want to change it. The narcissist, it's like, oh, there's nothing there. Mm, no, I don't hurt. I'm just going to shove it over there. And as, and then they spend years working on this camouflage that this is what I present to the world, but this is really what I feel on the inside because what I present to the world is what they want to see, you know, and this is what they think is healthy. You know, it's like the preacher who everybody loves the preacher, but then he goes home and he beats his kids. You know, it's like, and, and, and people are just shocked because it's like, but it's the preacher. He's like the most loving and kinding person. It's like, well, maybe not on the inside. He's not. So, so what you're saying is the empath is in a way is more authentic of, of a person. Oh, than a much narcissist. more. So the narcissist deals with all of this pain, stuffs it, creates a camouflage with it and never faces it. So he's busy beating everybody up with his pain. Well, you know, he puts that mask on. He puts that camouflage on, but he can only sustain the image for so long. You know, so you hear story, actually, my, my late husband that I mentioned earlier, 
so I was wife number six for him. Oh my gosh. So let me ask you a question. Okay. You're such a smart lady. Wouldn't you say there's a heads up here if the man's been married five times and before, or you just. So he was um, a very kind person and he came from a family of trauma and his dad was, I met his dad. We stayed with his parents for a few days and there was something that happened with the dog that he got upset and literally this man's like eyes turned red as his, he was getting warmed up. And I saw that and I'm like, oh my God. It's like, that's what you had to grow up with. I mean, there was like a freaking demon wow. that would go into that man and, and he caught himself and he turned it off because that was the mask. Um, you know, and so no, his comment when we got married, was while well, I'm waiting and I'm like waiting for my, I mean, this is it, you know, I'm a one size fits all right. type of personality. And he goes, well, I'm waiting. And I'm like, waiting for what? And he goes, I'm waiting for you to change. I'm like, change to what? He goes, well, that's happened in every one of my other marriages. As soon as they said, I do, they became a totally different person. Or did he become a totally different person? No, he was pretty consistent. He was a great guy. <laughs> so, but you ended up changing too because you divorced him too. No, he died. Oh, he died. This is the one who died. This is the one who died. It was like, oh, I finally meet a good one. I mean, people will say, you know, he was your soulmate, you know, and it's just like, true universe, you know. <laughs> right. Oh, wow. Well, think. So the, another thing I read about when I was researching this was that you talk about in your book, different parenting styles that lead to healthier, unhealthy adults and the primary attachment styles for each. I'll bet a lot of people listening to us, Rita, would love to learn about that because they're raising children or they have grandchildren or whatever. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, you know, it's not something that I talk about a lot. So I might need to, if I have a book, here kind of refresh myself real quick there we go just in case people want to yeah by the everybody absolutely you know people are like why did you put that picture on there and i'm like you know if you've suffered from abuse it's like it, you can't talk the shame keeps you silent and that's why i uh put that picture on there and you're often afraid to tell other people that you had a less than perfect childhood either. And then, and then mm -hmm. people hide that too. Well, you know, it, um, it makes you, you don't want people to think less of you. Right. Um, right. And people have that tendency to judge. I was just very cu curious because you talked about the primary attachment styles for an empath and a narcissist. So we're talking about the fact that the empath is scouting out everything as she walks into a room or as he walks mm -hmm. into a room. So her attachment style or his attachment style is different from the kid for to the parents, to parents, a parenting style that nurtures a narcissist. Okay. So I mean, their attachment styles can be the same. You know, there's a secure attachment style, you know, okay. where you're feeling loved and nurtured by the parent. You know, and then there are 
other attachment styles where you get hot and cold messages from your parents like i love you but then not so much and i love you and so they become very fearful and end up growing up with a certain kind of characteristics um they tend to be kind of clingy um you know they don't really know what's going on that's because um, they don't have a secure attachment well they don't have a secure attachment but when they do have an attachment it's like kind of depending on where they are, they can perceive it in different ways, you know, because they're internally not functioning necessarily correctly, you know, because basically your parents are your primary connection. And so what you learn over time is I can't trust them. They're not safe. You know, can I believe what they have to say? Um, you know, and so it can manifest in different ways that um, they try to get their needs met, you know, uh, you know, but usually it has to do with, um, you know, being very fear-based, you know, or having a lot of anxiety. Where does control come from? Dorita, people who are very, very controlling, is it, what is the parenting style that leads to that? Well, I mean, that would be like an authoritarian parent, um, you know, where they just tell you, this is what I want, and this is how I want it. And if you step outside the box, you know, you're corrected, you know, so like my mom, you know, I used to salute her and call her sir, because she was very like, <clears throat> with everything that happened. And, um, you know, so there are some things like I can recognize it, and this is going to sound silly, you know, in my adult life that um, I like, I don't even want to say I like being a certain way, but I get triggered if it's not a certain way. So for some reason, I, I have been using this story lately. So my mom had this weird baseboard issue. So if you cleaned your room and you did a good job, so instead of saying, hey, it looks good, she would always find something that was not done, you know, and then make you fix it. And so there would be countless times that she would like come into my room or I had to clean a, a second room in the house. Um, and she would be like, well, the baseboards aren't clean. So it was always something you can never satisfy her. No. And so, but now as an adult, if I have company, I have the cleanest freaking baseboards. I mean, I don't clean them every day or every week or whatever, but if I'm having company, you know, having clean baseboards and like right now my baseboards are like eight inches tall, you know, so, and there's a lot of them, uh, <laughs> but I have clean baseboards because that means you did it correctly, you know, but you grow up in that and that just becomes that mindset of this is how... This is how the world is, you know, I mean, in our formative years, we come in like a blank slate and our life experiences are what creates the programs that we're operating on. And, you until know, if we heal you, and we should change until we heal them, maybe, and we can change. Correct. Them. And, and, and that's just where I was going to go. And so if you think about it, those patterns are like um, a path in the woods, you know, and so if something happens, you know, our natural inclination is to go down that well-worn path because it's familiar. We know where it's going to go, blah, blah, blah. But when we start to make changes, 
we are cutting a new path. So I'll go back to my saying hi at 7-Eleven. You know, that first time going and saying hi to the guy behind the register at 7-Eleven was like, I am in the thicket and I have a machete and I am cutting a path, you know, but as I did it more and as I kind of expanded it, you know, still addressing that fear, because a lot of our programming is fear-based, um, it made the path bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, and there are times where I'll be in situations where I don't talk that much, I, you know, and I don't know if it's me or I get overwhelmed by energy. You know, like if it's a group situation, I sometimes get overwhelmed. Um, you know, so I haven't quite figured that out, but yeah, I don't well, know. So tell us about um, what do choosing self-worth, self-love and happiness have to do with ending this dysfunctional dance of the empath and narcissist? Okay. You know, so one of the things that happens with empaths, you know, and I'm going to even characterize that differently. So out on the planet, there are a number of uh, unhealed empaths, you know, that came from this family of trauma, you know, or have experienced difficulty in their lives. And they're the ones that tend to be the narcissist magnet, you know, because they go through life as people pleasers or they learn to be codependent because if I do what you want, then the vibration in the room, the dynamic between us is calm. And all I want is calm. And I will do anything I can to have it be calm. calm. And so as they sit there and start working on themselves, you know, one of the main things is creating some boundaries, you know, and saying, this is what's important to me. And, but with that, also recognizing that they might experience that not calm from the other person, but it's still to their benefit, you know, again, cutting that new path, you know, because if you tell somebody no, they maybe don't like it that much. Well, like they're taking a big chance because that person, mm -hmm. they're married to the narcissist or whatever, and the, and they're finally setting a boundary that that person's not going to like that. There'll be so, repercussions for that. Mm -hmm. You know, and it can be hard, you know. Um, I mean, you know, we were talking about me talking and, and I still have some issues in expressing my inner needs. And I remember in this most current relationship, um, telling him something that I needed, but it was on a really deep kind of soul level thing. And I remember going in the room, swear to God, I mean, this wasn't even that long ago, um, and literally white knuckling the chair, literally white knuckling, you know, and so I think two pieces, because I know we're kind of coming to the end here, is, one more time. you know, but it's our responsibility to make sure that we're happy, you know, we no one else can make us happy. And so if we're walking around every day miserable, then we're not happy. And we're not, you know, that's the person that you're with might be happy because you're taking care of all their stuff, but you're not being happy. Right, right. Being authentic, mm -hmm. make yourself happy. There's a big difference because um, 
the the other ways they're hiding behind other behaviors. But it takes a lot of courage to become authentic and allow mm-hmm. yourself to be happy. What would you like to tell everyone about your book? Let it rip. What would you like? Why should they all buy your book? Why should they buy my book? Um, and I, I kind of mentioned this before. So the book is kind of broken up and I'm going to say into three sections. Well, one, part. you know, so first I tell my story, which is a little long, um, <laughs> but I'm just going to tell you it, it, cause it's like 14 pages long and it just covered the surface, you know? <laughs> so for an example, talk about trauma. I mean, so I have. This is going to sound so weird. So I have an older sister whose name was Rita, who was born, was still born. And so they buried her, you know, and it's kind of like, how can you name me after some freaking dead sister baby thing? You know, tradition, so it's- tradition, right? Because in the, in the Jewish faith, they name someone after someone who's passed. But it's not a sister. I don't know, but that's what they did. I would never name, you know, a yeah, new dog the same as my old dog. Right. <laughs> right. I I hear you. you. At least change the first name or something. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so again, very 14 pages long, but it kind of gives you my story so you can kind of understand me um, that it's not like, oh, I didn't get the red bicycle. Uh when I was six, when I asked for it, and now I have all this trauma, you know, I mean, it's a pretty in-depth story, but again, just skimming the surface, Um, you know, and then it goes into really doing this self-assessment. It talks about, you know, attachment styles, and was I abused, and where, where was your place in the family dynamic, you know, because all of these things have an impact on who we are, you know, because in those formative years, that's where all the programming was created, you know, and there's a lot of people that will sit there and say, oh, well, you know, my childhood was good. And they have this very Pollyanna kind of attitude toward, toward it. But when you kind of drill down into their story, not so much, so much. It sounds to me like people who are wondering and are not totally happy and need to figure out if they need to go for healing or if they need help. Mm-hmm. Your book is a perfect book to read to to find out uh, if you've got some pieces that need attention. Mm-hmm. You know, but let me just quickly go over the other parts. And so okay. that's the, you know, the second part is that self-assessment. But then it really looks at the empath and nice narcissist relationship, because usually the most unhealed empaths will attract the most toxic narcissists. Um, And it is, and that's why it's the dysfunctional dance because they feed each other in a very unhealthy way. Um, You know, so it talks about what it is to be an empath, what it is to be a narcissist. And then it talks about this dance that they have with each other, you know, and if you think you've experienced narcissistic abuse, it really covers a lot of information. You know, there's one chapter called the life cycle of the narcissistic relationship, which kind of takes you through these stages. And I'm telling you, when I was working on this book, oh my God, Irene, 
I'm sitting there and I'm reading this stuff, you know, like gaslighting or love bombing and I'm uh, word salad and I'm reading this stuff in articles as part of my research. And I'm like, and I was like, oh my God. And there's even a word for it. And so they're very consistent. They have a pattern of what they do. And, you know, it's really a matter of recognizing the pattern as early as possible. And getting the courage to, if you feel that you've got to get out or, or, or what mm-hmm. you, you give it, do you give advice in the book for where people can go if they identify? I mean, I'm in this terrible marriage now. I realize it now after reading this book more than ever. Now what's my next step to get out of here without I mean, getting killed? There, there <laughs> is, it talks about exit strategies, but it also provides information on healing. It talks about mindfulness or journaling or how to work on healing the body, you know, grounding, which is an energy medicine technique. And so it gives you some tools to work with to start that healing process. Cause sometimes the healing process has to begin before you even leave the relationship so that you can get that strength, you know, but it also talks about, okay, you know, the love is gone, you know, the thrill is gone. What do I do next? you know, and offer some practical advice for people to exit stage left and safely, you know, because in some situations, it's not safe. Absolutely. uh, To get out of the relationship. Right. So now, why is it important for a person to heal? I mean, instead of just sitting in their poo, sitting in their swamp, doing this, why should people really think about this, get a book like this, and try to improve their lives another before they cross over (laughs) well one you'll have to come back and do it again but no but actually you know if you just point the finger and go well they did this and they did that and you don't do anything to change yourself on the inside you are going to end up attracting the same person with a different body again and you know the details might be different but you're going to stay stuck in that pattern. And the only way to get out of the pattern is to change yourself. I mean, I don't know if you've had other people on here uh, that have talked that, you know, a person has done uh, healing on themselves or they've grown within themselves. And then they find that all of their friends kind of drop off. Oh, I, we talk about that all the time. Absolutely. You know, you're changing. And, you're not a vibrational fit for these people anymore. Right. And so if you kind of use that same mentality, as you heal yourself, those lower level, yucky, narcissistic people aren't going to be attracted to you anymore, or they're going to be attracted to you like a moth to a flame, you know, because your light is very bright, but you would have more tools to recognize it early on and be like, hmm. Thanks, but thanks. Got to go. Wow. Okay. So now they're reading your book and they've decided they want to go to you for an intuitive clairvoyant reading, a medical intuition reading, a spiritual energy medicine healing. How can they get a hold of you, Rita? Sure. And so my website is soulhealer.com. Soulhealer.com. And, um, you know, I recommend to people to use the contact form on the page. because I'm not as good as answering my phone because uh, of all the spammy stuff. And if you just write an email that says like hi in the subject line, I have a very heavy delete finger. But if it comes through that contact form, I always read them and okay. respond. And I'm soulfeeler.com. Soulfeeler.com. And the books are on there. 
There's a ton of articles. Um, I have a healing trauma, you know, so this was really talking about healing more childhood type stuff, even though a lot of the techniques are the same, but I have a fairly recently released a healing trauma series that talks about the stress response and uh, dissociation. And I, it's a series of about 15 articles. Okay. Well, that's great. And what is the Rita tip for finding joy in life? The Rita tip for finding joy in life is to really monitor what's going on inside. You know, if you're not happy, if you're not feeling grounded, if you're not feeling content and you discover that you feel that way more days than not, I mean, you know, we all have bad days, you know, in a relationship, you have bad days, but if every day is a bad day, or if most days are bad days, then you really need to stop and evaluate what's going on and make a decision of what needs to change in your life so that you can get back to that place of wholeness that just feels so good. That's great. So Rita, the dysfunctional dance of the empath, empath and narcissist create healthy relationships by healing childhood trauma. I think it's a very timely and insightful read that helps people gain the insights they need to heal their toxic upbringings and improve their relationships with themselves and with others. I personally relate to your book because we spoke about this from my own life journey. And I appreciate the ways you're helping people to heal and find rebirth via all the things you do. Thank you from my heart for this incredibly wise, insights-filled and thought-provoking interview. And for all you do to help people heal and therefore have happier, more fulfilling lives. Thank goodness. And here's a reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, and especially on YouTube. Like, subscribe, hit notify to make sure you'll get these inspiring interviews coming your way. Thanks so much. And as I like to say, to be continued. Many blessings and bye for now. Mm -hmm.